0: 22 minutes it is after 7 p.m. We kick things off in the world of money and power. Roy Motoni is my guest, portfolio manager and analyst at APSA Asset Management. Roy, how are you doing, my brother? I'm good. How are you doing? Hey, man, long time, long time. Well, thanks, well, thanks. Uh, a bit tired. It's that time of the year, Roy, you know. Uh, yeah,
1: we're, and uh, we're, we're slowly rolling into the, into the last quarter.
0: Yeah, I, I also do think though we're in silly season. Uh, and maybe when we're not on air. Uh, and having a cup of tea, you and I can talk about uh, the latest happening uh, there at your employer. But I'm not going to put you on the spot there (laughs) in that way. Thank you, Yes, no, no, no. no. I won't do that. I won't do that. I also don't field questions about my own employer. um, So so I'll certainly... uh, We can have that when uh, we have our our tea discussion. But Roy, it is, uh, of course, as we're nearing holiday season and uh, many of the people listening to us might decide to uh, hit... Uh, The garden route, uh, and one very picturesque, scenic, and beautiful place in that neck of the woods is Plettenberg Bay. Now, I didn't know until today that Plett, you know, you could fly directly to Plett. Uh, But it seems there's one airline that does so, and uh, they've been battling. And uh, I guess, you know, not unique to many of these smaller airports. Uh, You know, I see same challenges in many of the other ones that are operated by the municipalities or even provincial governments. What's happening at the Plettenberg Bay uh, Airstrip, if I can put it that way, and uh, why has now Chem Air put down one million to make sure that it's in tip-top shape?
1: So, so this this is one of those things that I think you and I have discussed over the past six seven months um, about service delivery and 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 about enabling economic growth that supports employment and and development. So 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 from what I can see, what basically has happened here is that that airport was declared non-compliant by the aviation authorities, which meant they felt that it was not safe to land planes there. Um, and for that, they, 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 they basically sanctioned them from accepting planes. Now, Semair only flies from Joburg to, to, to that specific airport. Mm. So, so for them, that is the end of their business. So, so I guess they're faced with, to, with a dilemma. You could either wait and plead with the municipality or you could roll up your sleeves and get the work done. Now, when, when I looked into all of this, one of the things that was very interesting is it's very simple stuff. It's cutting the grass along the, the, a, a, along the runway, ensuring that the safety documentation is done. Um, and, and little things like those, it was nothing that was a disaster but it's very clear that the municipality was not bothered to deploy the manpower. So when SEMEA decided they were going to do it themselves, um, it reopened opportunities for them, and fortunately for them now we have, um, we, we, we have foreign tourists being allowed in and there will be flights. So in all likelihood, that $1 million will be made back during the peak season. So, so it, it answers two questions. The first one is um, service delivery... Um, how critical is service delivery? Service delivery is absolutely critical for economic growth. Who is responsible for service delivery? It is the government because we pay taxes. Um, if the government fails, do we just do, do we just roll over and die, or do we actually get mm. it done? Yeah, we get it done, but um, like everything else, the good thing is you have an opportunity at the election on Monday make your view heard. Hmm. So, so those, those are the things that I think people need to be thinking about when you hear and, and read articles such
0: as Yeah, yeah. It's just one of these ones also, um, you know, Roy, that not only have a ripple impact on the fortunes of Chem Air and their aviation business, but I would think have a ripple impact on tourism product providers in that entire region. Uh, I mean, if, if, you know, if a lot of your Tourist arrivals are coming, even in the case of domestic tourists from places like Johannesburg, Cape Town, and others. The convenience of being able to fly directly, you know, to uh, a place like that does wonders, I guess, for uh, a sector that has bled jobs, that has really bled, I guess, value as a result of uh, the numerous lockdowns that we've had. Um, and I just find it very startling that, you know, a, a local authority would not really deem this matter as something that needs urgent intervention.
1: The the, the reality is I think the priorities around the local authorities, um, everywhere we look, are largely disconnected from economic growth. What you've seen is the biggest priority is being able to pay salaries as the first thing and then negotiating the national government for bailouts and more cash to be able to do what their primary responsibility is. The thing about this is, if you fix the airport, then you have a lot of moneyed tourists who are now able to come in at an affordable price. They will stay there, they will travel, they will spread the word, and during this whole tourist season, you'll have multiple visits, which ensures that people get employed, even if it's just for the peak period. People get employed, um, all of these BNBs are open, mm-hmm. all the hotels are op- open, the economic activity rises. So... Yes, I agree with you. It's, it, I mean, in, in our mind, this should be the first thing that the municipality thinks about. But I think the dysfunction that we've seen across the board just tells you that um, it's not an assumption you should be continually making.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's one of those, uh, I guess, yeah, difficult challenges around where the rubber hits the road. Um, let's shift away from that and I guess go to the world of liquor. Uh, and uh, yeah, what do you make of uh, the uh, third quarter numbers of AB and Bev, that mega, mega brewer? Uh, and of course, how some of their brands have performed uh, in that third quarter, uh, not only just here at home, but I guess in many of the other markets where they not only have brands, but numerous customers.
1: So so this is this is a surprisingly positive update. Um, and, and just for the benefit of the listeners, you'll remember that AB InBev bought the South African SAB breweries, and Mm. the reason they bought them was because of the expertise they had in logistics and distribution and low-priced products and and their dominance in the Southern Africa region. And they haven't shown that promise since they bought them a few years ago. But this result was well ahead of where markets expected. Um, You saw that in terms of revenue, volume, and pricing, they were well ahead of where the market expected mm. in, each, in every division. So solid volume growth, solid, volume ex, um, solid pricing growth, good um, EBITDA expansion. And even when I look at SA, although, to be honest, the, the comparative period was a soft one because of lockdowns and everything, um, you, you've seen that at least operations are improving, Cash generation is improving margins are widening. So it was a far more positive result than the market was expecting. And I guess it's a lesson to all of us that sometimes you, you associate a specific stock with bad news, bad news, bad news, uh, and it gets ingrained in our psyche, but then they're surprised because your expectations are so low that they, can't, they don't really need to work hard to beat them. And I think mm-hmm. that's exactly what we saw with this, with this result.
0: Yeah, yeah. Then the other story in the world of liquor that uh, I'm quite interested in your thoughts on is uh, the second largest uh, global brewer of beer, Heineken, uh, has, uh, I guess, been hovering uh, over the last few months or so around Distel. Distel even came out and said, you know, where I think they put out a trading statement, they weren't going to pay a dividend uh, mm-hmm. and pending the progress with the talks with Heineken. And if indeed those talks are terminated, they would then summarily pay that dividend. Now, it seems there's. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, some uh, shareholders of Distel that they have to convince. More notably, the Public Investment Corporation, which has also had its own news, because we've just heard that uh, the disciplinary process uh, into their uh, CFO Matze Pomora has been concluded, and she's also been dismissed. So, a lot yeah. happening there. So,
1: so looking looking over and above um, the, the the political and disciplinary issues. I think the story of Distel and Heineken is a very interesting one. Mm. So Heineken the a global brewer. They've looked at what Distel is doing and, and, and the products that Distel sells, and they've figured that rather than trying to replicate it themselves, they'd be much better off making a significant investment in Distel and taking these products up. Now, in doing that, they also understand that there's a significant overlap which would not be... Interesting to the competition authorities. Mm. So, so I think what has happened here is that there needs to be a negotiation as to what happens to those products where they overlap, whether it's Savannah or or any of the others. Remember as well, Distel has a big controlling share. Well, not controlling shareholder, but a big significant shareholder in Remgro, and and Remgro's wishes are paramount to this thing happening. So my impression in all of these announcements is that first, there's a debate around price, which is where I think the press article around the PSE comes in. And second, there's the measures they need to take to ensure that there's sufficient value left for Heineken, as well as sufficient value for the Competition Commission to see that competition is not being diminished. So it's not an easy job. They initially had said that they would have this done by the, by the end of the third quarter, which, um, which was um, at the end of September. Mm. But it hasn't quite happened. It could be a complication of price. It could be a complication of what price the excess brands are going to be priced at, or valued at. Um, or it could be it could be just the technicalities around, does Rembro get involved, remain involved, does Heineken take the whole thing over, um, and, and if Lemgro remains involved, what do they do with these brands that they have to dispose of? So it's not a simple transaction, but but I think if we look at the bigger picture, this just shows the the, the impression that South African innovation has on global corporates. We we just had AB Inver, which bought SAB, which makes makes um, Castle Castle Lager and mm. made it domestically, and now these guys want to buy. Distel because of the innovation that Distel has. So something for us to be proud of. I don't think we should give it away on the cheap. Mm. Um, But there will be some resolution here.
0: Look, I mean, I I guess the other question that comes with this um, is what would a potential tie-up here between these two entities mean for the possibilities of getting brands like Savannah, Amarula, uh, you know, and uh, in instances where they aren't there already into European markets and into some of the key markets where Heineken has some presence? So for sure, and,
1: and we've seen that to the AB InBev um, deal. Um, so with that, a lot of the SAB brands were taken into the US and into Europe. And and that's been fantastic for, for, for our country and innovation here. So with Heineken and its global presence, for sure that will, for the brands that remain, you know, that there will be exposure globally. Mm. It means that they'll keep supporting farmers who are growing the original crop here. Um, there'll be skills transfer and and, the, and, and and the availability of the brand globally just means that those people who know how to brew this, who grew up learning, knowing all of this in the regions where all of these things are brewed, will gain greater prominence. There is no downside.
0: Mm. Yeah, one of those uh, uh, that are going to be watched quite closely. Roy, before I let you go, uh, it seems a lot is happening. I mean, I remember a few years ago uh, getting uh, chided by somebody who was saying, yeah, don't even think about price controls uh, because uh, you're going to, you know, uh, uh, I guess, um, disturb the functioning of the market um, mm-hmm. in a piece of work we we're doing. <laughs> and uh, to think that now, you know, everybody, I guess, is an Argentinian insofar as Uh, the interventions to try and deal with inflation that isn't arising because you and I are demanding more goods, but is effectively arising uh, due to supply chain challenges, be it the shipping Mm -hmm. crisis, be it the shortage of chips and semiconductors. uh, And uh, I guess uh, indicating that, uh, you know, you might not see some efficacy in an interest rate response when the source of the price uh, pressures is actually coming from the real economy. What do you make of that?
1: So so absolutely, I think your last point is the most relevant here. The the relevance of monetary policy is to address increases in price that come from excess demand in the economy. Mm. That's not what we're seeing right now. What we've seen is the the global economy shut down because of COVID. We couldn't go out, we couldn't do anything. But to start it up, governments spent a lot of money and increased liquidity to allow activities to start up. So what they did was they stimulated demand. So it's artificial demand. So right now what you have is aggressive growth in demand, but the stimulus is still there. So for sure, prices have to rise because supply has not yet quite caught up. So definitely this, this, this whole inflationary environment that we're seeing developing globally right now is artificial. Now, you, you ask yourself, but, but we don't want this to remain. And yes, that, that is true. What we've seen is, over time, the, the initial inflationary impulse has faded away mm. because supply has started matching it. But there are, some things, there are some underlying drivers. The first one is the fact that most countries now are saying, we don't want to be reliant on China or a single supplier. So we're going to go from the very efficient globalization we went through over the past 30 years, and we're going to go to local sourcing. You've seen that in South Africa that immediately means that you're going to have higher prices. The Mm. second thing is global transportation and also the investment in oil and the fact that ESG has become so important means that the cost of, of oil has increased significantly and the opportunity cost of carbon emissions has increased as well. So prices just seem to be rising on the basis of so many other things. So If you raise interest rates in a small open economy like South Africa, that's not going to help you. Mm. It's not going to help curb inflation. What it's going to do is it's going to curb demand and it could push you back into recession. Now, you spoke about price control. The truth is about prices is the best cure for high prices is high prices. Because if you look at the price of oil, every time the price of oil hits an all-time high, or uh, a recent high, what happens is demand falls off, supply becomes excessive, the price comes back. Now, if you have some bureaucrat sitting somewhere in Pretoria who says um, petrol can only be at this price, who's to say, who's to say that this fellow knows um, what the supply-demand dynamics are? what the demand function is, mm. how people will react and all of that. And also, who's to say he's not being influenced by political
0: considerations? Mm. But is also, Roy, public? I mean, I I don't... I, I'm yet to be convinced that prices are only set by supply and demand, especially if you think mm. about all the derivatives markets that influence, mm. you know, I mean, forwards, options, all manner of other things that play a role in what many people might call price discovery. So, so in a sense, I think you're right, even... Uh, a tool like price controls becomes blunt if you consider yeah. how many constituent drivers there Valuable, might be of price. Yeah. And one of those happens to be supply and demand, but there's probably a bit more than just that.
1: So, so, what, so what should happen in an environment such as that is if the government or, or the bureaucrats look in and say, you know what, we don't want to control prices, but we mm. also don't want this pain to be pervasive in the economy, then what we do is we take it on the chin. We, we increase the budget deficit. We have a fund that absorbs the shocks. So that fund is literally um, cash that is either from borrowings or from taxpayers mm. that ensures if oil prices goes beyond a certain level, we will pay because we are an oil importer, right? We will pay, we'll make the price more predictable. Now, that brings out an issue around government financing and everything. Mm. But In in, in, in 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 reality, what you want is to just shield your citizens from this period of volatility. And that is actually a justifiable thing from a government perspective. And people would understand that. They would understand it a whole lot more than price controls, which cause dislocations Mm. across the whole economy, which make prices in other goods in terms of transportation, manufacturing, and all of that completely arbitrary you'd much rather have the government say, you know what, the right price for fuel today is 20 rands. But we think that's excessive. Mm. We have the budget ability sure. to charge people 15. That 5 rand, we will take it on the chin. Okay. We'll either borrow it or in future we'll be able to tax it mm. or something of
0: the sort. Roy, we're going to have to leave it here. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but always a pleasure mm. catching up with you, my brother. And uh, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thanks for the opportunity and have a good evening.
0: Awesome stuff. Roy Motoni as an analyst and portfolio uh, manager out at APSA Asset Management joining us for our business wrap. We're going to take a brief break now and uh, when we come back, we go straight into our headlines. We stay in Tswane and uh, this time around, we talk about that municipal workers strike.